All right, good. Well, I have a kind of a, a thing to get that started. If you want me to throw that out there and you guys can Perfect. see what you think. Um, first thing is what do we mean by a relation? And I, and what, sometimes when I say this, say this out loud, or I think this through, I think this is, this is an interesting way in. And then I'll, and then I'll change my mind and think, well, that's just so obvious. It doesn't even need to be said. So I'm not quite sure what the impression of this will be. So I'll, I'll, I'll run it out. <clears throat> what is a relation? Well, in, in a kind of simple term, you have, let's just take it as, as an example, a cup of coffee. So you've got coffee and you got a cup. Those are two things. And then the coffee is in the cup and the in the cup is the relation. So we've got two things and the relation is being in. Okay. Now in that case, there's not much else happening. We've just got this, this coffee in this cup and the relation. But if you change the take on that and you go to, now this is the example that's been running around my head, so I'm just going to use it. Uh, this book back here, this, this book and me, and it turns out that book was given to me by my dad in 1992. Yep. And so there you got a book, me, and a relation. It was given yeah. to me in 1992 by my dad. Oh, oh, but, it does, but it can't, in that case, in the first case, it stops right there the coffee in the cup and the, uh, that just ends right there. But when there's me involved, there is me uh, interpreting it or me having that relation be meaningful. And so I'll just give you this stupid example. My dad gives me this book when I graduated from medical school and it's a, it's a textbook on surgery. And it turns out that was the textbook that he used when he was in medical school in the fifties. Oh, that's very touching. But it turns out I want to be a cardiologist and he knows that and he wanted me to be a surgeon. And so now the book given to me has got a little bit of a tinge of maybe disapproval. Maybe I take the relation as resentment. So now you've got the sense for what this self is in relating to the relation. That is to say it's, it's, it's a meaningfulness or it's a way of interpreting. I don't know exactly the right word to put there, but it's now it turns out that story I just told isn't true because what my dad gave me actually was his textbook in cardiology. I became a cardiologist. The, the gift was really, uh, you know, a congratulations and a, and a, and a, you know, kind of honoring my achievement and expressing the love between the two of us. And in reality, that's what that book means to me. So it shows you that there's plurality in the relating to the relation. That is to say there's potential or there's, 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 there's agency essentially in the self in some sense in terms of that thing that it is to be relating to the relation. So that's just kind of a start, a start. And then I can go a few more steps. Here's uh, when you, when you started this example, um, here's a analogy I was thinking of today. Um, is the whole analogy of marriage, where you have a man, the wife, and then this betweenness, this um, this new unity that's created between them. This um, you know this language of one flesh, this this new being that comes into being as these two beings come together. So um, you could think of something similar with uh, you and your book, though, in a bit of a different way. Where you know when I read Kierkegaard. 
um, I'm bringing something to the text and the text is coming to me and then we come together and then something new is born. So that's how I think of, of, of this notion of um, the relation uh, that relates itself to itself. But I wonder if that's different from what you have in mind or if it maps on well to what you just described. I think it, it potentially does. I, I, I want to take the next step in the text, though, which kind of pushes it to what I think he's trying to do. And, and in that, I'll, I'll read this sentence. This is what it is from the point of view of soul for soul and body to be in relation. So that's in the second or third paragraph. That. Second, yeah. Yeah. So what I think the, the, the two items that he's wanting, two entities, the two things, the two things that he's wanting to put uh, in relation here are body and soul. And what I think he means by that is, is you know, our physical existence or our existence as animals or organisms and our existence as souls. But here soul meant in a kind of universal sense or a, a abstract, looking on our souls from the outside. So the relation between our material and our non-material selves and what we are doing as, and then selves is the wrong word there, because what we are doing as selves is essentially relating to that relation, the relation between body and soul or the relation mm. between us as physical and us as non-physical. And, and so the, 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 the self is different than the soul as body and soul are like mind and body in the modern terms, in my my take on it, and we are we are in we these ourselves as subjectives. We are constantly working the question of what's the relation between body and soul. And if you look at the very first sentence of the book, it says the human being is spirit. And I think he links, this is one of these things with Kierkegaard is he's got these columns of terms, but I think he links human being with body essentially or organism and spirit with self. So, so human being is spirit. And I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know how it all fits together exactly, but that's kind of the way I'm going into it. And then I'll leave it to you guys to pick that apart or work in your direction with it. Matt. I want to tie into that a, worldview analysis because worldview analysis gets a bad rap but i actually think kierkegaard was prototypical in worldview analysis from the existential point of view so using um your phraseology of the and the entire way you unpackage that we see that it the moment you introduce the subject to a relation you can have a plurality of views what's the status of those views it's not exactly one-to-one -one, because like you said you admitted that was a fiction here's the reality but the fiction isn't divorced because it is the subject picking up the cup of coffee now not to repeat what you had said but to now put it in the context of worldview analysis presuppositional apologetics in other words analyzing the presupposition before we tell ourselves a story, whether it be the story of how matter got here, whether it be the story of the status of a soul, the story of salvation, whatever, 
And when we ask for evidence to support our claim, before we admit any type of evidence, there has to be this underlying understanding that we are subjects interpreting the evidence. We exist in a context while putting contexts under scrutiny. So presuppositionalism is tied to existentialism in that way as well. I totally agree with that. I think that as we're interpreting, you know, we might start with the self and the, excuse me, the body and the soul as, I don't know, what is the relationship, but it's barest, it's coincident, let's say, body and soul are coincident, or they're not equal by any means, but they're coincident. And now we're going to do something. So we give our presupposition, let's just imagine that we're all kind of modern uh, modernists, we're, give, we're given the, per, the, the worldview of the modernist worldview. Well, then we're going to think something like soul is an emergent phenomenon from body or soul is the, is the um, you know, emanation of the body's activities. So there you already have a presuppositional relation between body and soul. That's the self then comes in the self is now interpreting its own, this self, importantly, is this concept of subjectivity in Kierkegaard. That is the center of his demand on everybody, is to always go back to the individual subject. You, the, the, um, the, the one who is the occupy, you know, the one who is at the center of all of interpretation, you are now kind of confronted with this thing you've inherited this thing, even this view of it that you are, that is kind of your own intuition, essentially, that, that body is somehow fundamental and soul is an emergent psychological secondary derivative phenomenon. And now you can almost see where despair is, in, is the next step, if you will. Anyway, I like that presuppositional notion to inject that in here. Precisely when he goes through, as you said, this laborious, this prolix description of things, there is point behind it because there is despair and then there is despair, right? There's presupposition A despair and then there's presupposition B despair and maybe an N number of presuppositions of the phenomenon known as despair. And Kierkegaard can say from the existentialist vein, there's a kind of despair that you should want to be in. And then there's the kind of despair you shouldn't. But it all depends on where you're coming from. Like there's a despair of being ignorant of despair, he will come to say. <laughs> yes. Is he just is he just playing with words? No, he's trying to be very precise, but he doesn't have like the technical vocabulary of presuppositionalism. So he's doing it contra the idealism of poetry right yeah and hegel precisely yeah hegel's using these things to hegel's using his arguments to buttress his main argument as if all roads lead to his idea kierkegaard is saying no but to your point it starts with your beginning and then all your arguments are basically just outgrowths of your interpretive explanation of who you are (laughs) what you Uh, are yeah right What, what how do you Totally. That's, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And I think uh, Jordan B. Peterson, at one moment, he gave that 45-minute long video where he tried to explicate a single paragraph of Nietzsche. And interestingly enough, in that paragraph, 
Nietzsche said that all philosophy is an obscured autobiography. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. But, mm, wow. And that will, but I mean, that is consonant with what Dr. Jim pointed out with respect to the center being the subject and all explanatory modes more or less being a belabored um, autobiography. Yeah, and you guys oh. were talking about in one of your discussions where there would be this potential of an infinite regress. I think one, the, the way Kierkegaard stops that is with, it with, is with the subject because it can't really go back behind the subject. You stop at, at your own direct experience and your own, I don't know, ownership, your own responsibility for your own thing. So if you're going to want to call it all just, you know, quarks and, and fermions, you own that in a sense. That's, you know, hmm. sorry, I interrupted somebody there. That is beautifully put. You own that. That is where the concept of fate plays in with subjectivity. There is an objective fate to whatever you own because the consequence of it will be the consequence of you yourself over right. time. And right. so first things first, in a Kierkegaardian philosophical system, the hard, rigorous work is not paid to the consequences of like a syllogism. It's paid to the starting point of why we're even believing in premises to conclusion. What gives us that warrant? And it's, the, it's, it's in my opinion, where agency lives. That is to say, agency lives in that in that essentially self-interpretive act, um, that, that, um, that choice that you make to see it as, and then you fill in the blank. Um, could you guys um, back up with what uh, <laughs> Matt and Jim were just talking about? Um, I think you're, what you're describing is sort of this notion that um, this the self sort of starts with presuppositions and then um, develops its uh, way of seeing the world from there. But um, I'm a bit, I'm struggling to get how that sort of connects with this notion of the self as a relation that relates itself to itself. Um, could you maybe run that by me again and also get Robert caught up at the same time? Okay, I'll try it again there. So, um, Kierkegaard starts with this notion of the self as relating to relation. And then you got to figure out what, what are the two things that are in relation. I gave a quick example that a very simple version of this is that you've got, let's say, coffee on the one hand and you've got a cup on the other. And the relation is being in. That is to say the coffee is in the cup. So in that case, we've got two things and a relation. But when you introduce a subject, when you introduce something, uh, when I engage the world, let's do it that way. When I engage the world, we have two things. We have me and the world. In that circumstance, we don't just have two essentially inert things. We have two things, me engaging the world, and then there's some relation that I take to that relating. There's some there's some way in which I interpret my relation to the world. So you can rephrase the self is the relating to the relation as the self is essentially interpreting 
the relation. I don't like that quite as much because it goes to a kind of abstract, like rationalization kind of notion. It's more, it's more being engaged in the world or, 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 um, you know, uh, being c confronted by the world or being in the world in action, in purposeful action. And that then is this notion of relating to the relation. It's not just to inert things. It's, it's a self that, that really is by definition, this, this competency for relating or this action, this verb of relating. Uh, you could you could maybe um, tie the the notion of relating and um, interpreting together by saying uh, part of what constitutes the self is maybe this web of relationships it has. So you know this, this relationship you have to uh, as a doctor to your clients, the relationship you have to your family, the relationship you have to the objects. So you you describe the book you have, this relationship you have to that, this relationship you have to. So you're sort of constituted by this um, web of relationships to the world, to other subjects, and probably to yourself. And that is what you then bring to, um, to any other relationship. So, so maybe that's when it, one way of thinking about it. Yeah, and then Matt brought in oh, – go ahead, Matt. The, um, I was writing to another friend about this and I made three points like a syllogism. So I'll just read them aloud because they tie into Julian's web of belief, which by the way, was a phrase used by um, a philosopher at Harvard. His last name is Quine in the 1950s, namely this notion of the web of beliefs. But here's, here's, an art, here's a, a formula for that. Premise one. No proposition or belief is theory neutral. They all, that is all beliefs, partake of the philosopher's point of view. Premise two, a point of view is not to be found within the paradigm which a given argument or belief canvases. And then conclusion, no proposition or belief is reducible to a self-evident maxim. We get in that a kind of uh, suggestion of this relation relating self to itself there, because you don't get a reduction down to one. You don't get a reduction to a self-evident piece of evidence for Christianity, for atheism, for anything. You don't even get a proper proof for yourself. P try to prove you exist, I dare you. We can't do it. We assume it along with all the other things we believe, and in those beliefs, we assume a theory. Now, in the course of education, we can change the theory, but to approach the world as if there was any neutral place that we could start from and work out objectively is to, is to not do philosophy proper in an existential Kierkegaardian sense. Oh, yeah, I think that's um, part of what he argues in, in the postscripts is this whole notion that you can't um, sort of create an, uh, an, an objective system because um, you're, you're sort of one by creating the system, you're pretend this sort of objective system, you're pretending it's not the subject who's doing the, the philosophizing. But at the same time, once you've created your objective system, you've left out the, the subject. So, uh, it, you're always tied up with the world in a, in a non, 
um, you can't you can't remove yourself from the world to to think about it completely. So this allows for at least the introduction of a cognitively, emotionally respectful assumption of faith. It doesn't pit faith, however you wish to define that, knowing that there is a theory behind it. It doesn't pit faith as such against science. That binary doesn't like it doesn't belong with what you just said because subject as subject possesses beliefs, faith, while also engaging with this external uh, world. I, I would push back a bit um, and say those are two types of faith, I guess. Um, you know, the, the sort of bare bones faith, you know, that I exist or that, um, the world exists is, is sort of is, is very different from religious faith, I guess. So I think this is something similar to what Kierkegaard does in postscripts, isn't it? No, not po the philosophical fragments or sort of um, makes this argument that sort of every act of knowledge does carry these presuppositions or does carry this act of faith. Um, and I think that sort of, he then sort of moves on to um, his religious notion of faith. I would say that I think that Kierkegaard, though, is, is also, uh, let's say, pointing us to the idea that we are embedded. We are, we're embedded in a culture. We're embedded in our own situatedness. And we emerge, we emerge in something that we're not responsible for, that we didn't make, that, that we didn't really... Um, think through or choose and what we're embedded in is really more than just being embedded in it but it it is our own presupposition it's what is intuitive to us because we're given into it we're given it to excuse me we are given it by the culture into which we were born into which we are and so that then starts a a journey if you will it starts a a circumstance in which we emerge into something that isn't what we are or isn't what we might take ourselves to be, um, let's say, ultimately. And so the tension between what we emerge as and what we may end up interpreting ourselves as or becoming is, in a, in a way, that I think that the journey of this text, because if you look at the way there's some quotes in there, and I could dig around and try to find them, but there's some quotes in there that say something like, despair is the avenue to faith. And I think what he kind of means uh, by that is when we emerge with that givenness, and I think in the modern world, we, that givenness is, is somehow a kind of hierarchy of being which places materialism over the non-material. Materialism is somehow more foundational, more real, more, has more purchase on what we take to be substantial than does what we count as the non-material, which is, of course, everything we encounter is non-material. You know, ourselves, our, our pets, our, you know, our loves, our desires, you know, everything you can name that, that is in your life really is not material. And yet we somehow have inherited this, this prioritization of the material. And then to journey out of that, and I think 
that sickness unto death in a way, because if you think of death in the way that he talks about it there, death is the outcome of the material. That is to say, if we see ourselves as material, then our end is death. So sickness unto death is, is the attitude of our ourselves in our emerging into this consciousness that we all emerge into at some point or another. And we're faced with that, you know, that presupposition. And then we're in despair because of that. And now, the, now what the book is trying, I think, to talk through is ways of thinking about despair in more detailed ways. He goes one direction with despair and another. And I think he frames that in the three categories of infinite and finite, freedom and determinism, and what's the other one? Eternal and temporary or temporal. And, and there's big sections of that first half of the book where he's kind of talking through despair in each of those categorical domains. And what I think he's trying to get to at the end is that if you work through that, you're going to find yourself running to an endpoint where faith is possible. Anyone? <laughs> uh, yeah, I could jump. This, in. on the other side of the Atlantic, we saw a similar development in the United States with our philosophers most pronounced in pragmatism. So William James, in his variety of religious experience, gave us- by Kierkegaard, apparently. Yes. He basically gave us Kierkegaardian language, or this language of the leap, by saying, given, for example, you're out in a forest and you see a sign that you interpret as five miles to town, you can't know, you can't subject that sign to an objective test to know whether or not it's deceiving you, if it's really 5,000 miles, or just five. You also don't know if your body will get you there. You don't know if the world will end in five more seconds. All you can do is trust the veracity of the sign by fiat, by will and faith, and then enact it for as long as possible. That very action and moment-to-moment -moment commitment is what constitutes a subject's life. And that was, he, re he reached out his hand and said, that's all we've got as philosophers. And then this was picked up by um, Dewey, and this was picked up by Richard Rorty. And I would say in a way, maybe not so helpful to a Christian, but helpful in other ways, where vocabulary itself, the sign on the road, you can't even know what the sign is saying, five miles to town. That's just somebody's language game. So he's kind of putting the cart before the horse, Richard Rorty in his book, um, Nature and the Mirror of the Mind or something like this. Yeah. Where everybody just has their own vocabularies for semantically putting labels on objects out there. And you can really to to have a subjective life, you just gotta be willing to play each other's game and learn each other's vocabulary. It's kind of taking the idea of moment to moment commitment, but instead of treating it as an adventure of survival, literal survival in the Jamesian sense, it's epistemic in the sense of you can have no warrant for your belief. That is a lifelong process. And I think that is deadly. And I think we're feeling it now in the culture because we're not even willing to trust and we're not even 
able to trust a bridge between our words and our thoughts. Kierkegaard, at least, at least Kierkegaard trusted the relationship between words and thoughts. Otherwise, he couldn't have made arguments. Um, I, I, I've been reading, um, uh, what is this book by Dostoevsky called? The Underground Man. Um, what does that have a different name? The one? Yeah, I think yeah, I'm from the underground. That's what it is. I mean, the first chapter or something in this uh, character is has this comment about how um, he says the the really reflective people. Um, he, he essentially uh, he essentially describes his existence as um, walking, sort of doing his job, and then going home and just sitting and staring at the wall. And he says, you know, that's sort of the, what, what reflective people, I'm not sure what is exactly, what he says, something like reflective people um, are sort of caught in this despair where they can't do anything. They don't want to do anything. And it sort of makes me think of what, maybe that's what he's getting at is sort of um, this absurdity of sort of every single you know, this interaction between different human beings sort of presupposes this faith that we can understand each other. Um, trusting, you said, trusting this sign that, that, that takes you to the next town, just getting through life. Um, and especially the, the big um, existential moments in life where, for example, you are take, you know, proposing to your future wife, for example. You know, that's, that's the ultimate act of faith because, um, you know, <laughs> you could be shackling yourself up for, for all kinds of misery, um, but, but you're, you're trusting that, that, that there's love between you and that you know this person. And yeah, it, it's this, this leap of faith. All, everything that matters in life is, is, a, is a higher leap of faith. And I think that, that, that carries all the way up to, to God. And notice the correspondence that's assumed in the belief that I love you, I will propose, and the other says in faith, I do. Notice the correspondence there between a person, a subject's desire to express love and receive love. It's assumed that that desire and that intention for reciprocality can be captured by and faithfully reproduced in language. Otherwise, proposals and acceptance would make no sense. So it's assumed that there is such a correspondence. Now, there's no guarantee that reality external in the next instant will be gracious to your correspondence. So faith is, will we stay together? Will we see it through? Not, can my desire have appropriate um, expression via the vehicle mm -hmm. of language. Mm -hmm. It's will the world comport to my desire? I won't know unless I try. Okay, we need to um, jump off because the recording is stopped.